0: Hello and welcome back to The Stories That Brought You Here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I am your host, Chris Wakalek, and I will be sitting down in one-on-one, hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this smiley little island we live on and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Sam Boyt. Now, if you know Sam, like I know Sam, then you're going to know him as that guy who's got his name on real estate signs all over the island. Well, we're going to get to hear Sam talk about that along with many other things. We'll get to hear him pay homage to his great-grandfather, Bob Bug. We'll get to hear Sam talk about what it was like growing up on Pender Island. He'll also talk about his time at boarding school. And Sam will discuss his intimate connection with Hope Bay. I absolutely loved doing this interview with Sam. It was so great. And this is going to be the last episode of the year. And so at the end of this in my little wrap up, I'm going to tell you guys what you can expect for 2019 for season two coming up here. So stay tuned for that. And as well, too, get ready for some new transitional music that was performed by Ben McConkey. And I want to give a huge thanks to Ben for doing that because it sounds so much better than the music that... I did before, and uh, huge thanks to Ben for doing that. I've listened to it over and over again. I really like the way it sounds, and I hope you do too. So that's about it for that. We'll see you on the other side. And without further ado, here is my interview with Sam Boyt. <laughs>
1: Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Great yeah. to be here.
0: I'm so happy you're here. We're recording this really late in the day.
1: It's late. I'm going to try and, you know, gut check time here. I'll try and stay awake long enough to get through this. I'm okay. getting pretty tired.
0: <laughs> okay. Hang in there for sure. It's almost 10 at night right now, but we're, we're doing it on a stormy Monday night. Well, to get into the first question that we always touch on on this podcast, and that is, of course, what brought you to Pender Island?
1: Well, I was lucky enough that my parents had a vision back when I was a wee chap. I think I was about six or seven. And I think it was 1978 that my great-grandfather moved to Pender. And my dad followed him out to help him build a little house over here. And then I think my dad fell in love as soon as he got here. Just loved the island. We were living up in Parksville. I was just a wee chap. I had a younger brother. And my folks just decided they were going to take a chance and try something different. I think I remember coming in 1981 in a moving truck with my dad and my great-grandfather, who was the kind of pioneer for our family getting here. I remember listening to some stories in the moving truck coming down, and I was always a quiet kid, but I listened very intently. And apparently, I'm also told that I was a bit of a... I wasn't the best kid, let's put it that way. I was a little bit of a wild one. My parents thought I was an angel, but I think I was also a little bit mischievous. I don't remember the story, but my grandfather, great-grandfather, Bob Bug, told me the story that the next day, apparently, I got up bright and early. We had just moved, arriving on Pender, visiting my grandfather. And I'm in the kitchen, and I stand up on a little chair. And I look at him, and I said, Jesus, Grandpa, it's a pretty goddamn nice day out here. (laughs) And I think I was seven. And obviously, my grandpa looked at me, and my mom looked at me, and... And that was the last time I was allowed to ride in the moving truck with my uh, with my dad and my grandpa at the same time because apparently the language was a little bit more than a seven-year-old should hear, let's put it that way. So, that was kind of a cool time. But I do remember riding in the front seat of the moving truck, yeah, when I was about seven. And that was our first kind of trip over to Pender. And then my brother has a phenomenal memory. I My memory is a little more vague, but I do think that we really just got into Pender. It was a very different island back then in 1981. Not in terms of the people, but it was half the population. I think we had about maybe 1,200 people in total on Pender. Yeah, so the island was our oyster. There wasn't a lot of traffic, wasn't a lot of tourists or cyclists. So we had the whole island to ourselves, it felt like, when I was growing up. It was pretty special.
0: Okay. I don't think I've interviewed anybody yet who's grown up from that age on Pender Island what was that like as being a 7 year old and going to Pender Island elementary and and uh, having that experience for you
1: it was a, it was amazing my folks obviously pretty nurturing and wanted us to be growing up in an environment that was safe and you know secure so that we could play outside and not have to think about anything really just be our be kids and so, yeah, I started in grade three on at the Pender Island Elementary School. My brother was in grade one. And I, I mean, my picture is still on the wall in the school there, which is kind of cool because I can go back now and show my kids who are now six and nine and we, we have a laugh at their dad with hair. Because as you know, the follically challenged gene is in my family. You know, it's just, it's really neat to be a part of something where you grew up in an area that was really special to you. I went away, obviously, after after I finished elementary school. I went away to high school, off-island, and university. But I always knew that if the timing was right, I would come back to Pender and and start a family here because I, I really valued my bringing. It was really special.
0: Awesome. Well, what were some of the things that you can highlight that uh, really made it special for you in those early days?
1: I can remember learning how to golf with my great-grandfather. And again, he was a pretty big influence in my life because my parents were working full-time from the time they got here, just making a living. And my mom did many different things. But I remember when I was eight or nine, learning how to golf with my grandfather. So he would take me out on the weekends. And the little Pender Island golf course was still here. It was much different, but I think it was only a nine-hole course then and much smaller. They've changed it a little bit. So Sundays were spent him teaching me how to golf and me learning sort of the hard knocks because he was a pretty tough guy. He grew up in in the in the early 30s. So he didn't have a lot of patience. So I had to learn to respect his rules and respect other people around us and there was no tolerance for bad behavior around Pappy, which was nice. It was, you know, I th- I don't think about it at the time. I thought that he was really tough and sometimes really grumpy, but I think about it now that he taught me a little bit about being respectful to older people and just being considerate of the people that are around you, you know?
0: Nice. Nice. I know that you wanted to uh, share some stories in an email you sent me, because I asked people to send me some things that they might want to talk about during the podcast. You had a lengthy section that you wrote about your, uh, your great grandfather, Bob bug, but any particular stories that you want to tell right now about, uh, about him?
1: Well, some of them are a little bit R rated, but I think if there's probably vegetarians in that are listening to your podcast, they might not like the story about, uh, about him Shooting a deer on his property. But I think the main thing that made me, that just made me smile was that he always had a sparkle for life. You know, he was very adventurous. He was a hunter gatherer, though, and that's the way he grew up. So when you survive the early 30s and you are struggling to just live and feed your family, he definitely took advantage of everything. So he grew his own food, baked his own bread. He, During the wintertime, he stored his food and made preserves and always lived off the land. And that was pretty interesting to, to watch growing up. But yeah, the one story that is a little bit shocking was that one day when he was probably in his late 70s, my father got a call on a Sunday morning and all the call said was, Charlie, get over to my house and bring your sawzall. And he hung up and my dad didn't know what to think about that. So, of course, he zips over to my grandfather's house and... My grandfather had indeed shot a nice young buck that was eating his rose bushes in his garden on his front porch. And I guess my grandfather shot it with a twenty two. Apparently, it didn't die. So, my grandfather jumped on its back with a hunting knife and it did drag him around the yard a little bit before he managed to put it out of its misery. So, my dad got there, my grandpa was in his house coat and covered in deer blood And of course, it turned out that this deer had been a deer that the neighbors had been feeding apples for the last couple of years. So, he wasn't a popular guy on the street for that year, probably the next year after that. But that was the way he was. You know, he he did kill one deer every year. He ate every part of it. He dressed it, hung it in his garage. And just one of those things, I think, we take for granted our food sources now. And he never did, which was a really good lesson, I think, growing up.
0: Yeah, for sure. I guess you got to share in the eating of that meat as well, too.
1: For sure. I didn't really like venison, but when Pappy served a meal, we ate it, you know, and it's one of those things when you learn about how things are you know, where the food comes from and how it's stored and how it's kept and how it's prepared. It makes you appreciate it a little bit more. And he used to take us fishing every Friday as well, and we'd go out in a rowboat and row out to Fane Island, which is just just off Huson Road there the end and we'd row out in a little boat we'd catch a few rock cod and go back to his place and we'd have fish and chip fridays pretty much twice a month all throughout my my upbringing so you know again it was all about eating what you catch you know he oh he never bought a loaf of bread in all the years that he lived on pender he baked his own bread and always had four or five loaves in the freezer so just an incredible resilient guy and lived to be in his late 90s
0: Wow. You know, that's really interesting because he was teaching that through his actions, not through words, it sounds like.
1: Yeah. And some of his words were pretty crass and cantankerous. And we sort of, you put those aside as you get a little perspective when you get older. But his words, if if he had them, were often words of wisdom that weren't often politically correct. But we always knew that he had a, you know, they were well-intended and that he meant what he said and that was one thing that i i learned growing up with someone like that that's a survivalist is that you don't take things for granted and you definitely say what you mean even if it's not necessarily going to be the politically correct thing to say if it's how you feel you communicate it and then people react to it in their own way but he definitely wasn't he wouldn't win popularity contests as he got older in life but we always respected him for that
0: Nice. I just heard the phrase recently: "honesty before harmony." And yeah, uh, yeah, I think I think it's a a good way to live as best as you can because it's hard. It's a harder way to do. It's a harder road to go on to do it that way.
1: Yeah, he would definitely put us in line if we were misbehaving or if he felt a certain way about a certain political figure. You know, the words would come flying out of his mouth, and probably we'd have to leave the room. But on that other side of it, you know, if someone came to his door and. Chatted with him, and he was happy to talk to him. Uh, let's, let's say it was uh you know. I think at one one point in time, he has a had a visit from um, Mike Harcourt, who was the premier at the time, and Mike was doing some campaigning on Pender, and Mike came and knocked on Pappy's door, and I think they had a conversation. It might have been at his house or maybe at the golf course. I'm not sure, but after that, Pappy was just a hardcore supporter of Mike Harcourt because he took the time to come and talk to him face to face, and that was interesting. So, he was always about the old school method of communicating directly with people, looking someone in the eye, you know, he would just probably roll over in his grave listening to Facebook or watching Facebook or probably even listening to this podcast. (laughs) But but I think that that's also something that we don't see every day anymore. We've lost a little bit of that message of communicating directly with each other, speaking from the heart, maybe connecting more through friends and family without actually looking at a device. I think Pender's great because we still have a lot of people that are doing that, you know, and we still have a community that is not necessarily all social media based, but it's still a big part of, of our island as well.
0: Wise words, Sammy boys. I feel like I'm getting wiser just sitting in the room <laughs> with you right now. <laughs> no seriously that that, that's great for sure um well let's let's turn the focus back on to you and your life here and you mentioned that you got a scholarship to Brentwood College when you when you were younger can you uh, tell us about that
1: yeah I was lucky enough when I was in grade seven I went to an interview in a couple of places we went to have a look at St. Michael's School and Brentwood College and Shawnington Lake School as well and My parents always wanted to give me opportunities if I was willing to take them. And at that time, the opportunities for us on Pender were a bit limited. We could take a water taxi to Salt Spring. That school was a lot different than it is now. And so we didn't have as many choices in terms of how we would get connected into the secondary school from grade 8 to 12. So we took a chance. We went up to Mill Bay, and I remember my first impression of the school was it was based on the old British sporting school. So, a lot of brick buildings and beautiful sports fields. And I was always an active kid. And I think for me, I met uh, John Allpress, who became a really close friend and rugby coach. And we've kept in touch for all these years after that. But he took me out on the rugby pitch when I first got to the school. And I never had a rugby ball in my hands in my life. But he tossed me a rugby ball and he asked me to Run down the field, and then he kicked one to me and see to see if I could catch it and then he came over to me and said, "Hey, son, you look like you're a pretty good athlete. If you want to come to this school, I think you'll do really well, and there's a lot of sports here that would interest you. He made me feel welcome right away as a youngster. I was only thirteen, and he just empowered me to take a chance and you know boarding school isn't for everyone, but for me, living on Pender, it was an opportunity to just immerse myself in some sports and arts. And it was a really active school. They pushed you to succeed at a high level in academics and sports. And I really ate it up. It fit my personality. That must have been
0: so weird to leave home. You know, you say boarding school is not for everybody. That I think it's kind of hard to fathom about how that must have felt. Because did you come back on weekends or...
1: So, my, I found out after the fact, years after I graduated, that my mom and dad, well, they would visit me every, usually every Sunday. So, my dad uh, had a small boat, powerboat, and they would boat over from Pender and visit us at the dock. The school was right on the water. So, they would come and we'd either go for lunch or they'd come up for a visit or they'd drive over the Malahat to visit me on the weekends. They'd come to my games if I was playing rugby. And obviously, I've got amazingly supportive parents and, I wouldn't be who I am today if if I didn't have my folks that definitely sacrificed a lot financially for me to do that and and emotionally too. The emotional part I found out more after the fact like I was saying because I learned that my mom would drop me off on Sundays and then she'd drive a little bit up on the side of the road and she'd start bawling because she missed us so much but she didn't want to let us know that well you know she knew it was a good opportunity and I think she did sacrifice you know having that time for us when we were Teenagers, she gave up some of that time so that we could have an opportunity to just see the world and you know experience more than just Pender Island, which I thought was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, way to go, mom. Right on. Yeah, and so you talked about playing rugby at school, and that led to some opportunities as well, too. Can you tell us about uh, your career playing rugby when you were in high school?
1: Well, I did excel at rugby and you know, I found out that I was obviously, I have an active personality. I don't sit still very well and I always like to keep busy. So the sports there were phenomenal. So we trained three days a week. We went to school on Saturday mornings, which is unusual, but we also got longer holidays. So on Saturdays we would get up early. If it was a rugby term, we would train in the early morning before the sun was even up sometimes. Then we'd have games on Saturday afternoons and then practices throughout the week. So, our team was a losing team for many years from the grade 8 to the end of grade 10. We very rarely won a a game. And then something clicked in our team as we gelled a little bit together. You know, a group of guys that get to know each other and you sometimes have to learn how to lose before you can learn how to win in, in sports. And we went from getting absolutely creamed on the pitch to... Grade 10, we started winning a few games. Grade 11, we started winning a few more. And then in grade 12, we actually went all the way to the the independent schools cup and we won that. And then I think we probably, I'm not sure how it was we ranked in provincials, but I know that we were one of the top teams in the province, if not Canada, by the time I graduated. And I also got to tour Europe a couple of times. So I traveled through Scotland, England, Ireland, Wales, Holland, Belgium, France, on two separate rugby tours where we we were one of the top high schools in in canada so they allowed us to kind of represent the canadian high school team um so we got to wear the red canada jersey in our in our games which is kind of cool
0: super cool and was that your first experience going over to europe
1: yeah yeah so I, I wish the one thing i wish i had have done is maybe taken some time after school and traveled back but I did get to go and at least see a little bit of the world there during my high school years in grade 10 and grade 12. But I was an enterprising kid, so I got right into the working world as soon as I finished high school and then worked through university, and I never really stopped. So I wasn't one of those kids that took a gap year, but maybe for the best because I think I also have one of those addictive personalities. So, you know, maybe taking a year off wouldn't have been the right thing for me. Who knows?
0: Okay, well, what happened happened. And, and, and what exactly did happen after that? Because I know that you, you said that you went to uh, Carleton University.
1: Yeah, I did. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I'm still not sure what I want to be when I grow up. But at the end of my high school year, I got a call into the, into the office to see our counselor or, you know, careers counselor. And I had no clue what I wanted to do. And he just said, Well, you've been really good in your sciences, you're pretty good at your maths. Do you have any interest in engineering or architecture? And I said, maybe, I don't know. And he told me about this industrial design program at Carleton. And Carleton didn't at that time have a great reputation. It was called Last Chance U actually, or Carleton where the K stands for quality. This was another term. So I think it was kind of made fun of by the other universities around. But at the end of the day, it was the program that I was interested in and, and also the opportunity to see another part of Canada. So, I did four years at Carleton and ended up with a degree in industrial design at the end of it.
0: Okay. And you said you were working your way through university. What was your university job? Yeah.
1: So, that's actually what I was, we're talking about people that have been maybe influential in our our lives. And when I was uh, about 17, I think, I got a job working here with Carl Hampson at Hampson Engineering on Pender. And he's one guy that you might want to interview if you haven't yet. I don't think so. He's just one of those island characters that has done so much for the community of Pender, but he also saw an opportunity to educate a young mind and put me to work at a young age. So I I started sweeping his machine shop floor and worked in the summers while I was going to school. I would come back to Pender and he was always busy doing something. And if it was slow, he would send me out to his field and I would cut down thistles or firewood, or he would just keep me employed because I think he liked that I was reliable and worked hard but he also knew that there was some potential there for me to maybe learn a little bit about his company and and maybe stay for a long term. So in the end I did. I finished my university degree and I came back and worked for him full time and I did that for I think it was about 10 years before I finally decided to switch careers and try the the real estate thing.
0: Okay, and well what sort of projects were you working on with Carl in those days?
1: Yeah. So, he builds packaging machines, which is really interesting. So, what he does is he takes any product off an assembly line and a lot of the products that he dealt with or still deals with is hard to package things like glass bottles or so he's in the liquor industry. Oh, he's done Demerara sugar. He's done all sorts of different things. His machine is a specialty thing and it takes the product as it comes off the main assembly line. Collates it into rows, puts dividers in, and then folds a box and glues the box, and then it comes out as a finished boxed case. So it's a case packer, is what they call it. So I learned everything about his business in terms of, you know, he would we would build these things in his sheep barn on Pender Island, which is really ironic. You know, you you drive on his fifty acres in the middle of nowhere, and we're building these fairly high tech engineering type devices that are one of a kind things. And then we would ship them all over the world. And I think Carl just recently retired this year. Actually, he finally hung hung up his uh, his engineering business and sold it to two of his employees who are now operating, I think, in Sydney. So,
0: so 10 years, 10 years yeah, into that.
1: 10 years, it kind of flew by pretty fast. I mean, I enjoyed it. And it was really interesting work. But I also realized that it wasn't necessarily my passion. It was Definitely interesting work, but Carl was the inventor. He's the mad scientist, and the business really was his business and his baby, which I thought was amazing, and I I respected a lot. But I also realized that I was the kind of person that really maybe needed to be a driver in my own right, and I not I wasn't sure if that business was the exact fit for me. So, in two thousand and six, I think it was, or maybe end of two thousand five. My mom had always said that she would like to start a business with me because we got along really well and she'd been in real estate here for for some time. So she asked if I would take my license and could we start a business together. So 2005, I started taking the real estate course, got my license in 2006, and then we opened our doors in I think it was early 2006 at Hope Bay.
0: Okay. Well, there's so much to touch on about that. So let's just get right into it. (laughs) So, you opened the doors at Hope Bay. Why did you guys choose to start at Hope Bay?
1: Oh, instead of somewhere else on Pender. Yeah. yeah. Well, my mom had really fallen in love with that part of the island, I think. She really liked it that it was on the water, that it was a new entity. Hope Bay had burnt down in 1998 in a fire and it had a series of sort of unfortunate tragedies where people tried to rebuild it and it didn't really happen. And then in 2000 and I think it was 2002 or something like that, a group of 28 islanders decided that they were going to all commit some money and then finance a construction loan to rebuild the project. And it was really neat because it was a dedicated group of islanders. Some of them are still on the island. A lot of them are. And they just had a vision that they didn't want to lose Hope Bay as a iconic community space. And so they called themselves Hope Bay Rising and they rekindled it from the ashes. and. Brent Marsden was the lead contractor, and there's many names. Um, If you want, you can just go to the website and have a look. But there was 28 local uh, islanders, and they took about two years to rebuild it, and they opened in 2004, and they managed to secure a few solid commercial tenants like Parks Canada, and Peter Binner was a goldsmith there, and I think they had a restaurant. Hope Bay Cafe was the first restaurant there. And a few other tenants, core tenants, there was a hairdresser and a furnishing store and they all just, they took a chance and it it worked. I mean, they managed to get this thing on the ground and running and they won a commercial restoration award for their project as well, which is something that maybe not everyone knows, but they designed it after the old building and looked at the original plans for the site and tried to resurrect as close as they could. The original footprint and the original feel of the space, so it was pretty cool.
0: Nice, yeah. I had Brent Marsden in, in episode fourteen, I think it is. So anybody listening who wants to find out more about the Hope A restoration, he goes uh, deep into it, and it's pretty interesting stuff for sure. But can you talk about uh, your initial first experiences with, I guess, having the office at Hope A and being a real estate agent?
1: It was really neat. We we had a lot of support right off the bat because my mom is an angel on Pender and has done a lot of volunteer work and just. She's a really special lady. She always works hard. She always tries to do the right thing. She's she had an amazingly solid reputation. It was a real challenge for her to break away from Pender Island Realty and start her own company, but she'd always wanted to do it and she felt that if we did it together as a family business that we we'd get supported and that we'd we'd have enough work to keep us all busy and 2006 was a busy year. We were we got into it that time was strong and it was just my wife and Rita, myself and my mom and uh, we started in the tiny little office just at Hope Bay and from 2006 to 2009 we were the market was active, the island was quite busy, the economy was fairly strong and we really we were productive. You know, we worked hard and we managed to build the business up. We took on a couple more agents and we expanded a little bit and then 2009 things started to slow down a little bit and we always just kept trying to provide a good service to grow responsibly and socially responsibly and to give a lot back to the community that was supporting us and so we managed to weather some really tough years from 2009 to 2012. We continued to slowly grow during that time but we also lost a lot of money as a company to keep our doors open. So we had a a huge amount of inventory, we had a lot of listings, but not a lot of sales. And in real estate, if you have no sales, you have no income, because your income is all back end loaded. When you sell a house, the company, you know, gets paid and the realtors get paid. So when you have a lot of listings and nobody's buying anything, your overhead is massive and your income is small. So in 2012, 2013, we slowly wondered if we were going to have a business to work at and whether we should close our doors or or restructure but slowly the tap turned on in 2013 and and the the, the economy started to change a little bit people started coming back to the island buying houses or renovating homes and se- seemed to me that there was a lot of people moving to uh, the island full time that transition started then and from just being a lot of seasonal occupants and so that really changed the the feel of the market again so in 2006 to now we've really seen quite a large down cycle two small up cycles and i think we're kind of in the middle right now where things are starting to taper off a little bit
0: You know, it's interesting about being a real estate agent and that personal connection that you share with people. I would imagine every time that you sign a contract and you're being asked to help them purchase a home or help them sell their home. How does that feel on your side of things to be in that position? Can you just comment on that a little bit?
1: Oh, I think that if you're a people person, then it's a perfect job for you. You know, In order for people to be comfortable inviting you into their lives to help them, I think you have to have an innate love of human beings and you know for me that's what really drew me to the job and i think it's what's kept me here all these years is that you have to respect that it's very emotionally stressful for people they're putting a lot of often a lot of weight on their decision making and so if you can help be a voice of reason or a level playing field in their thought process and educate them and make them feel comfortable with whatever decision they're making And you have to be able to ride out their highs and lows with a constant sort of constant resonance. And I think that's really important. So yeah, I'm a people person. I mean, that's definitely, I enjoy helping people. And I think that's the service of that industry is a big part of what has probably made our company successful. And maybe me personally, just, I always see it as what can I do to help? How, how can I help this person this couple or um, how can I help them get through the situation that's difficult or challenging and what outcome can we have together that's going to be beneficial for them and I've always put their needs ahead of my own and I think that's if you talk to people that are successful in business I think that is the key to business but it's also the key to a lot of other things in my in my mind
0: yeah never a bad starting point to have with a question to ask yourself how can I help? You mentioned your wife, Rita, as well, too, earlier. How did you meet your wife, Oh,
1: good one. Well, Rita and I met in uh, in Victoria at a Halloween party back in... I have to get the dates right. She's going to kill me. But it was, I think, 2003, October. And I was dressed as a big inflatable clown. And I had just come off a long relationship. But I wasn't really looking for something long-term. I was just kind of figuring out what was happening in my life, who I was. And a mutual friend kind of invited me to a house party and I saw her there and she was dressed as a pirate. And yeah, we, we connected right away, just eye to eye. And it was really interesting because she had no idea what I looked like. I was, I looked like I was a big 300 pound inflatable clown. And so I think she just liked my smile and I, I liked the way she was looking. She was looking fine. And We connected right away, and we went on, um, I think, one other sort of visit engagement just at a party before that, and then I invited her to Pender on my first date.
0: Okay, so why did you invite her to Pender on the first date?
1: Well, I was living in Victoria at the time, but I always knew that if I found someone that was really special and that they liked Pender Island, that I would migrate back there. And so, yeah, I took Rita to our Christmas party at Hampson Engineering, which is for her at the time probably was a little unusual, you know, because we had just met and but I always thought, well, if you're gonna get to know someone, you may as well get to know them right away and not waste time. So we hit it off really well. She came over and we had a great time at Carl's party. He had a catered party at his house with kind of an intimate party with his uh co our coworkers and he always used to do a little family gathering kind of thing with a with a caterer. So she went to that with us. Uh, we kind of mingled with my colleagues on Pender, my coworkers, and then back off to Victoria we went. But it was the start of things to come, which was pretty cool.
0: Right on. So she liked the
1: island right away. She did. Yeah. She. I think looking back, she really appreciated the fact that that I had some roots here and that it was something that she, you know, she came from a family of uh, parents been married forever, and I think stability in a marriage was really important to her as it was to me so she saw that that's what i was looking for and we connected on that level really quickly and so yeah it was a natural fit for sure
0: nice i was just thinking that you you mentioned your mom uh, a few times earlier here and i just wanted to give you an opportunity to speak about your dad for people who may not know your dad can you tell us a little bit about him
1: well, my dad's probably one of the most well-known guys on Pender because he's the local fire chief and has been doing that for, I think, over 30 years now. And so he started as the volunteer chief on Pender just shortly after we moved to the island, I think probably in the early 90s. And that's where he lives. His whole life is about serving the community in that way. He absolutely loves it. It's his passion. If you want to see Charlie Boyd just go up to the fire hall and the coffee will be on and he'll be working there. And it's amazing to watch, you know, your parents, as we get older, I'm surprised that my parents are still going strong, but they both found passions in their life that have kept them working, you know, and haven't really felt the need to take their foot off the gas. I think they might be getting close though, but, you know, my dad is still dedicated to that job and certainly growing up watching him do his thing and and just put in those kind of hours way and above beyond what he's getting paid for it really empowered me to to find a passion of my own i think the happiest people that i've met in all my dealings in real estate and in life are the people that are giving of themselves to some cause and it doesn't have to be a big cause but any cause that's a little bit bigger than yourself and you find these people may not be millionaires, they may not even be hundred thousandaires, but they're, they're very, very fulfilled in their life and, and what they are experiencing on a day-to-day basis. So I'm learning as we go, you know, and to me, that's empowering. When you see people that are successful in what they do, they do it because they love it and they really want to give freely of themselves and not really necessarily expecting the reward or the carrot at the end. It's just about the process of what they're doing.
0: It is a really important thing in life to just be engaged in the process and not worried about what potential reward you're going to get, mm-hmm. you know, just to apply it to working for an hourly wage. I'm, I'm recently just in the last couple of years starting to sort of come to the realization of what you've been speaking about. And I think it's super important for my own personal growth to realize, wow, like the more... You put into things the more you're going to receive back and not on a monetary level but just on something far deeper and I think that's amazing that you have been able to learn those lessons from your parents that's awesome
1: yeah my parents are definitely a huge influence in my life and I'm a lucky guy there's no question I I think about that a lot as I have kids now of my own and I mean I, I feel often that I've a lot of times I feel like I'm maybe failing as a parent but I think every parent feels that. But when you look at the the iconic level that I've elevated my parents to in terms of how they've raised me and how many opportunities they've given me, it's kind of almost hard to live up to. But, you know, I also appreciate that every day is different and we're in a different place than they were when, when I was growing up Our you know, things change quickly. And I think all you can do is love your kids really and try and make the best opportunities that you can for them and. Also, try and just be a good person every day. Be kind.
0: Good one. Well, let's lead into the second traditional question that we always get to on this podcast. And that question is, who has helped you along the way on Pender Island? And I know that you mentioned Carl Hampson earlier as one of the people, but anybody else that you want to highlight, give attention to? Give some props? Yeah,
1: props. Uh, You know, when you grow up as a kid on an island like this and you think back to your life, I mean if I was to pick any one person, I think I'd probably be missing a hundred. You know, it feels like as you go through life and reflect back on an Island like this, that they're really, I can't think of one person that didn't help me, you know, or teach me something. I mean, just goes right back to my school experience here with um, lovely teachers, Mrs. Jean Bradley. She was one of my elementary school teachers. Uh, She's still got family here on Pender, the Bradley family. So, we're still all connected. It's in these very strange ways, but it all goes back to um, Mrs. Bradley's teaching experience, I think in grade three it was. And so, I mean, you think about the influential teachers that you have when you're a kid and you think about the people that you that impact you in your work and in, your, in our, our sports. We were lucky to play hockey on Pender with a group of guys and there's a whole bunch of them I've known forever. You know, guys like Steve Wright and Gary Goodman you probably interviewed I think Gary I know I've listened to part of that one and those guys are just uplifting people in the community that have been sort of really influential at times when I needed them or even sometimes they don't even know that they're influencing me because I'm watching them and how they live their life and realizing that I could maybe think about things a little differently or or look at something from a different angle so I think I'm an observer of people as well it's probably what drew me again to the the profession that i'm in i really enjoy hearing people's stories i enjoy watching how people tackle problems and challenges and in, in their own different way and i think you can never stop growing and learning
0: and so you're saying that this island has like an abundance of people to uh to draw inspiration
1: from i would say in a nutshell it's it's really hard to i can't specifically think of any one instance where i i was profoundly impacted, but I would imagine that if you if you look at my experience over many years here, it's been thousands of people that have impacted me in a very positive way from a community that's really about the whole it takes a village to raise a child. I mean that's the philosophy I think of Pender Island. And it's been the same since I was a kid. I don't think that's changed. There's been lots of changes, lots of growth. You know, our population has doubled since I grew up here. You know, there's more people on the island we have more cars and traffic a little bit but the fundamental values of what brought us to pender as a family i don't think they've changed in all these years and that's really cool
0: you know it never gets tiring to hear people talk about how much help they've received on the island it really shocked me the first five or six times i heard it where one person after another it was like so many people so many people have helped me along the way but it doesn't get tiring to hear it and it's such a wonderful thing to be spoken out loud repeatedly that this island is just so helpful and really rallies around people in desperate need or is there in subtle ways like you're describing and it's it's super cool.
1: Yeah, I agree. We we have a really special community and you know, you see it when there's families in need or people in need individually, we rally and try and help each other and I think if you fall on, on Pender Island, there's there's a thousand people to pick you up. And it just is a really empowering thing to be a part of. And I think you don't get that as much in a bigger community. At least I didn't find it when I was living in Victoria. I did get to know my neighbors in a little cul-de-sac on Taylor Street, but I lived there for five years and I would have to say I I can't really count the number of influential experiences maybe on one hand you know that i where a neighbor helped me or where i helped someone people are a little bit more individualistic in their compartmentalized lives on on uh, in a bigger city and i think it's just the nature of things are busier lives are are full um, the borders are drawn up maybe a little differently you know and people just don't necessarily reach outside of themselves to connect to their little villages whereas here we don't necessarily have as much of a choice. You know, you're going to see the same people in the grocery store every day and at the gas station or at the coffee shop. And so I think you have to be the type of person that is okay with that. And, um, it's not for everyone for sure. I mean, I've had people that I've, you know, in the course of showing property after an hour, they say, you know, when's the next ferry? It's just, it doesn't fit them. You know, if you're used to the environment of a city, you know, the hustle and bustle, lots of things happening, or even just not being in an isolated environment, being surrounded by others, then pender can be really tough. So I see both sides. But for me, because I grew up in this environment, I think I wouldn't have it any other way.
0: Nice. Nice. Something else I just wanted to uh, ask you about as well, too, was that you mentioned in the email about the Hope Bay Rising Group uh, approaching you and uh, your family as well, too, about purchasing Hope Bay.
1: Yeah. We were really a lot of fortunate things happened in our business. I think probably cuz my mom was a big driver in in building the company and also her reputation. So, we were a pretty young company in 2008. We just started our company. We were 2 years old. And the group of folks that resurrected Hope Bay were managing it, but it was a little difficult because they had 28 owners and a collective a group of owners that were overseeing the management. But decision-making was becoming a little more tricky when you have to a board of directors to make decisions. And I think they realized that their, their goal, they called their company Hope Bay rising. And once Hope Bay had risen, they realized that the best thing to do was to maybe find the next person or, or entity to pass the torch onto. So it was Brent, I think, that came up to us one afternoon and said, you know, we've been thinking, we we decided as a group that it might be time for us to sell, but it's really important to us who we sell it to. And it is and still is a tough thing to run a commercial space on the Gulf Islands. It's a lot of extra energy and effort just to keep things rolling on Pender when we have a small economy. But he really convinced us that we were the right fit for what they were hoping to achieve which was to create a space on pender that could be a legacy property for the islanders to enjoy for the community of pender maybe for arts culture for a collective gathering place for people on pender that's going to be bigger than any one one person and also maybe keep the historic character of the island intact and so he sold us. I mean, he was good. Francis a salesman. You probably had found that on your podcast. He's really good at at the gift of the gab. But he definitely empowered us to look at it. We didn't have a, any clue if we could even do it financially. It was a massive undertaking for us to even consider because both of our, well, my parents were still working and you know mortgage on our house, and I had just moved from Victoria. We sold our Victoria house, and we were just getting into a renovation, small renovation on our house. So. Somehow the bank decided it was a good idea. Our company had uh, had a couple of years of strong sales. And so we managed to convince the bank that it was a good idea. We somehow came up with the down payment by refinancing and we were able to become the caretakers of Hope Bay. And I think it was a really nice move for us. I mean, it it definitely connected us to Pender uh, in another way in terms of being, uh, being involved actively with the pretty important and significant piece of real estate as you call it but i think more importantly it allowed us to continue to be able to operate our our business but also think about what it's going to be like for my kids um how are they going to see pender when they grow up are there going to be places that are safe and interesting for them to play that maybe aren't haven't gone mainstream that are a little bit nostalgic that remind people of a time that you know once was and I think Hope Bay has that potential. So as a family, I mean, our goal has always been to just keep it thriving and and we've gone through some struggles, some really tough economic times where we lost some core tenants and tenants retired. And I feel like we're kind of building up a tidal wave on the other end now. We've got some fantastic new tenants. We're really excited to see that their sense of community is, it's a fit and match for what we feel is, you know, is what Hope Bay should be. and so. You know, we've got Pender Chocolates now who have joined us. We've got Gather Collectibles, that's Matt and Cher. They're doing live music in the summers. They're working at getting the restaurant back on track. So I think my goal and my hope and my vision would be that Hope Bay is going to be sort of entrenched in the island community as a space that is bigger than any one of us. And hopefully we can hold on to it long enough and keep the real estate thriving so that financially we can do it. It really hasn't been easy, but we still believe in the in the space.
0: Nice. And you use the word caretakers as a way to describe your role in Hope Bay there. And I think that's such a wonderful way to describe it. And as well, too, you think thinking about the future, about how your children are going to interact with the venue as adults. And it seems as if you have a very long-term vision for Hope Bay.
1: Yeah, we I mean, my parents are at the different end of the spectrum. So their vision might be a little shorter minded than mine now as they get closer to retirement. But as a family, I think we're united in the fact that we really want to see the space thrive as a community space. And, you know, moving forward, how we do that, I'm not sure. But we're looking at maybe bringing in another local investor at some point to keep that keep that torch going we've had opportunities to sell the space and the building but they haven't been the right fit we feel it should be a space that's for the community and i mean it's kind of the last piece of pender left that i grew up with Uh, port washington store unfortunately that store had to be demolished and uh, for various reasons and i think that was another little keystone i mean all of the marinas and resorts have been kind of bought by larger companies or bigger companies that have tons of money behind them so we're going to see some big changes likely happening on pender and the marina avenues on the island and our goal is to not make hope bay change we want we don't want it to fall down and we want to keep it up and maintain it but we want to preserve the character of what the original 28 had in mind which is the charm and the nostalgia of that space and we're hoping we can do it just trying to stay positive every day and I volunteer a lot of my extra time just to make sure that things are happening and that the water doesn't flood in the basement and you know that the we make our own salt water so it's a desalinization system we have Peter Binner the goldsmith who helps me with the water and he's kind of the backbone of Hope Bay if he retires I don't know what we'll do but we have all these people that have given of their time over over the years to you know there's not a huge amount of profit to be made in a commercial space like hope Pay. it's really more about a social investment and we've always seen that if you can hold on to an investment like that for a long enough time it might be a benefit to your your family or your kids but it certainly will be a benefit for the moment you know as you're moving through life that's something that our kids can enjoy something that we can enjoy together as islanders and um I know my parents would like to see some financial return at the end of the day, but my my feeling is that the financial reward is is just in the ability to be able to use the space and work there. It's been a massive impact on my life. You know, I spend hours working at Hope Bay and I'm fortunate to wake up. I hear the seals if I'm working late or if I'm going early in the morning, there's always something happening on the water. Boats coming and going and the moon rising at night. It's just one of the most spectacular places that I've ever seen in my life.
0: I really appreciate you sharing this with me, Sammy, because I, I know you've known you for a lot of years and we hang out and play disc golf together. And, but I've never heard you speak about Hope Bay in this way. And it's really a privilege to get to hear you explain your position on Hope Bay and how you feel about the legacy of it and what you want to do moving forward. And just want to say thank you. I think it's really great really love what you're saying thank you
1: thanks bud yeah
0: no problem man um segue okay and uh you brought me over a couple bottles of uh homemade cider when you came over here thank you
1: well first of all i think this is pretty cool what you're doing so it's a small little gift that i brought for you and a little piece of myself because we shared this cider it's a new thing for me hopefully it tastes okay but we uh <laughs> We got a group of people together on Pender last year and we recently uh, sold our, our property in Magic Lake and we were fortunate enough to buy a little bit larger acreage. And on the acreage, the fellow that we bought it from had developed a pretty sizable orchard. There's about 30 trees. So there's some fruit trees, some nut trees, apples, many many different varieties. And we know nothing about farming, but we're learning and we're We're making mistakes. We tried making some cider last year. In order for us to learn, we shared it with or collectively got together with Ginger and uh, Chris and Renee on Pender. And Ginger is an expert. She's been brewing cider her whole life. She's a scientist and we were really lucky. She's got all the equipment. So we just supplied our apples and said, we know nothing about cider. Help us. And in exchange, maybe we can learn and get a little bit of cider back so that was our first year's experience and you get to try the first crop from our uh, our cider.
0: Okay, right on. We so Ginger who?
1: Oh, Ginger Talbot. I'm not sure. She's she's uh, been around on Pender forever. She's quietly doing her thing as one of the most incredible people on Pender that you're going to meet. She she does bookkeeping for our company as well. So she's kind of the backbone of the accounting end of our business and if we didn't have her I don't know what we do. She's another one of those pender treasures that just keeps us on track. Just lovely to be around. And the most important part is that she's amazing at making cider. So we get to learn from her, which is great.
0: She's got decades of experience with making cider.
1: Yeah, cider. And then of course, she does property management and maintenance around the island. And she's got a few core clients that she works with. And she's always busy. She's also got a property that she's developing with an orchard as well. And just hardworking lady and as good as they come. So we're really lucky that we get to learn from her and and get to share in the experience of making cider with a group of Islanders as well. It's really fun. i would never done anything like that. I, I know you, you've done some homebrewing, which is pretty cool. This is my first experience. And to me, the product isn't even as important as the process. You know, just the whole pressing of the apples, the experience of working together to get that done, harvesting the apples collectively. I think that there's so many things that are great that come with doing something like that that comes from the property that you live on or if you can even just do it and go and pick some apples off the trees on Pender because many of them are just the apples fall off fall to the ground. So, I highly recommend it. The deer eat them. Yeah, I highly recommend trying, I mean, even if you just make apple juice and get a do it by hand on a small press it's really interesting and rewarding to do that it's a great process and it's lots of fun
0: nice yeah and somebody along the way planted those trees many many years ago do you know how old those apple trees are any properly roughly or
1: i think he planted the start of the orchard about 15 years ago and so the newest trees are maybe 10 or so so they're all mature producing trees and you know we're learning how to prune and what to do, what not to do, how to make sure that you're not getting mites or bugs. And we're trying to do it organically. So it's a little more hands-on. We're not spraying or anything. So we're just learning how to take care of the trees naturally. And it's a huge learning curve. I mean, I'm I'm totally green at it, but I'm having fun. And so we're trying to work with our kids as well, teach them a little bit about about living off the land, growing simple things in our garden like tomatoes and beans and stuff and just trying to help them understand that you know the food doesn't come from the supermarket it comes from hard work and and i think on pender we're really lucky that we have so many food growers that are doing the same thing some of them are just backyard growers but then we have these beautiful farms that are producing food for pender so we're lucky we're really lucky that we have quality amazingly good food right in our backyards
0: For sure. You know, a couple of years ago, a friend was renting a place with an orchard in the backyard and invited my wife and I over to go pick some apples with a bunch of other people. And it was such a fun afternoon because there was this abundance and we're all giggling and trying the different apples and seeing what they taste like. And there was a couple of pear trees on the property as well too. But it was the experience of sharing and harvesting together and uh, it was such a memorable afternoon. It was such a, a beautiful invitation as well, too, for them to say, well, <laughs> we're not going to use all these apples. So come on down and uh, and grab them. It was, yeah, it was great.
1: Well, I think that's the cool thing about Pender, too, because if you really are looking to try something new, you're probably one degree of separation from finding someone that's willing to share with you in what they know, you know, and it could be something simple as apples, but really it comes down to anything that you want we just have a wealth of depth of knowledge in this community. So I've always been impressed by that. And I mean, I didn't have, I didn't have a clue that I'd be making cider. If you asked me two years ago, I didn't have a clue that, you know, there was so many people on Pender that had this understanding of, of knowledge of how to grow things. And if you have questions, you can just ask around at your local coffee shop, you know, and you're going to find, there's probably people that have done it and will give you, they're just happy to share their knowledge. It's something that I think it's a gift that not necessarily everyone gets. I think when we're talking about growing food, I know that they're, they're doing some amazing things with uh, community gardens and the the cooperative group that's looking at agriculture on the islands. So we're getting there. And I mean, I like I said, I I know nothing. I really am just learning. I'm like an infant when it comes to, these things but i'm i've I've got an open mind and i'm hoping that at some point you know i'll be able to sustain our family from our property we've got the space for it and i'm working a lot right now in my business to to support our family but i think the long-term goal is for us to be able to live off the land a little bit more
0: fantastic i like what you say about the free exchange of information shared on the island as well too and that people's willingness to open up and try to answer any questions or problems that other people might have, whether it be in the coffee shop, the hardware store, the grocery store. It seems as if people are are really at the ready to try to help in that way as well, too.
1: Yeah, I think it's... I mean, I get asked a lot, how's the real estate market? You know, so I often joke with Rita that if we have to go and get milk, I'll send her. Because if I go to the store, I'm probably going to ask 15 times, you know, how's the market? What's going on? How's the real estate market? It's the blessing and the curse of the small community, right? But on the other side of that is that I think we have so many people on Pender that are feel the same way I do, that they feel lucky to live here. And so sharing in their knowledge or sharing something that they've experienced and enriching someone else's life in a positive way, it just comes naturally for the people here. And that's, to me, I think the key that has made me stick around on Pender and hopefully will be good for my kids and you know everyone's families because we just have this this little gem of an island where it's a bit of a utopia which is sometimes hard to comprehend you know when there's so many other crazy things happening in the world you can always go outside and and open the door if you want to really you know get real with the world and in, in at large but I mean, what an amazing place to be able to wake up every day, drive drive around Pender. We don't have traffic. We don't have traffic lights. We don't have ambient light even at night. You can see the stars. You know, you look at all those things that, you know, it's almost heaven on earth, really. I mean, I don't know how else you can describe this island. I mean, it, there really isn't any other place. And I've traveled a little bit, maybe not extensively, but... I just haven't found a spot in the world that feels quite like this. And I, I know a lot of people I think on Pender that are here probably feel that same way, or they wouldn't have stuck around so long.
0: Well, I was going to say, if you have anything else to add at the very end here, but that was so eloquent as I was listening to you saying that. I'm like, how is he going to do better than that? How is he going to wrap it up with something better than that? But Sammy, it's been a real pleasure to get to sit down with you. Thanks for coming in. And I will say, if there's anything else that you want to add at the very end, here you go.
1: I just think it's great you're doing this. I think it's important for people to tell their stories. And I don't think anyone on Pender has attempted something of this magnitude to talk to a wide group of people so i'm really empowered by you so keep up the good work buddy i'm serious this is really cool and i mean even if only 100 people from pender hear it you never know where those stories will be told after that or you know what experiences that will give to someone you know listening at night and i think the cool thing about this podcast is it doesn't necessarily have an end you know there's this whole looping thing that goes with the spoken word it transcends time almost. So you're you're on the right track, and I'm really happy you're doing this for Pender. Thanks, Chris.
0: Thanks, Emmy. All right. Well, to honor that interview, I decided I would come down to Shingle Bay. So Shingle Bay is now the site of a national park reserve. There are a few camp spots. And the only way to get in here is either by kayak, canoe, or walking in, which is not a far walk. And the reason I decided to come in here was because there is a small orchard here as well too. It's my understanding the orchard had been planted by the previous owner and remains intact after it was bought by Parks Canada. So there's a sign here that gives some information. It says from 1927 to 1959. This area was the site of a fish reduction plant, the remains of which could be seen today just out in the water. And this is a beautiful little gem on the island. Really like this spot a lot. I wanna thank Sam so much for doing that interview. That was really wonderful to do. I wanna thank you so much for listening and I want to thank everybody who has done an interview with me this year huge thanks to all those people it is an incredibly vulnerable thing to sit in front of a microphone for an hour and answer questions about your life and your past and who you are and your thoughts and then have it put out to your peers in the community big thanks to every single person that said yes because without them there would be no podcast so thank you so much to all of you for doing that and I mentioned at the beginning of the show that I would tell you what my plans for next year are. I plan on doing another 25 interviews next year. So ideally, I'd like to release two a month. Hopefully, I can stick to that. But my commitment is to put out 25 interviews next year. If anyone has any people that they would like to nominate for potential interviewees, I'm including my email address at the bottom of the write-up for this show. And if you'd like to get a hold of me, that would be fantastic. As well, too, if anybody wants to contribute or donate financially in support of this podcast, I'd be very open to that. Just to give you some background as to the process of doing this podcast is I have done this completely on my own from the beginning. The major time goes into the editing process. Once I complete an interview, it takes me approximately four hours to do the first edit, where I take out any ums or ahs, and I make it as tight as I possibly can. And then I go through and do a second edit to tighten it up even more. Then I, of course, record the intro, I record the outro, and I put that together. At this point, from start to finish it takes about 10 hours if everything goes relatively smoothly sometimes it takes a little bit more sometimes a little bit less but right now the average is about 10 hours and prior to that the first number of interviews i did it was closer to 15 hours where i'd go through and do three different edits just to make sure that it sounded as good as i could possibly make it and There was a lot of learning involved in the beginning, and I feel like I've smoothed that out a bit, but it's taken a long period of time, and not only have I put in hundreds of my own hours into this project, but I put in hundreds of dollars into this project as well too, to have the website hosted and have a place where people can go to download it so they can listen to it anywhere, not to mention investment of equipment into this as well too. So... If you want to contribute and you feel so inclined to helping this project along, anything would be greatly appreciated. I didn't really wanna go through a conventional means of financial donation via Patreon or a donate button. I just kinda wanted to make it a little bit open. So if anybody wants to contribute in any way, you can email me where my address will be located at the bottom of the page as well too. If anybody has any experience with any grant writing, that would be incredible. But I guarantee that I will complete 50 interviews. And then once I've reached that, we'll see what happens. But if you enjoy this and you like what you hear, even if there's a way that you think you can help that is unique to you, because this is a little bit of a unique podcast, I'd like to think, feel free to contact me and let me know. But that's it for this year. Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate people taking the time to listen to an hour-long interview, and we'll see you in 2019, and until
1: next time.